But let's open with a word of prayer and we'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We ask, Lord, as we go to your word right now, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We know that no one is here by chance, that we're all here by divine appointment. So give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. Lord, I know that in tonight's chapter, it applies to everyone in the room because it's dealing with young men and old men and young women and old women. And it's dealing with people that uh, work for a living or have people in authority over them in the workplace. And, and Lord, we want to be a Christ-like example. We want to live the lives you've called us to live. So I pray your blessing upon everyone who's here, those that are watching on live stream, those that will watch this later or hear this on the radio. Lord, may your word go forth with power. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So, as a reminder, Titus, First and Second Timothy and Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles. They were written by the apostle Paul to his sons in the faith. Now, Timothy he wrote to while he was pastoring a church in Ephesus. He now writes to Titus, and Titus is on the island of Crete. And being a Cretan was a, almost like a curse word. The island of Crete was very debased. The people there were very perverse and wicked. And so planting a church, I guess it's like planting a church in California. But planting a church in the island of Crete would be something that was difficult. And so Paul writes this letter to his son in the faith, Titus. And as he writes this letter to him, he's going to encourage him on how the church ought to operate. Uh, the outline for the whole book, we're all going to look at chapter 2, the first 10 verses. But what you see in any letter that Paul writes is it always begins with belief. What do we believe? And then how do we behave? In light of what the Word of God says, how do we respond? You could also say it's doctrine and then duty. It's belief and then behavior. So in chapter 1, he talked about the protection of sound doctrine. And how did they do that? By proclaiming the truth of God's word, by ordaining qualified elders in every church, and by rebuking false teachers. So that's what he did in chapter one. He said, do we proclaim the word of God? Don't water it down. Teach the whole counsel of God. And then he said, at the same time, make sure you appoint pastors. So the island of Crete no doubt there were many churches. Now keep in mind, this is only about 35 to 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And already there's false teachers coming into the churches. Already there's, you know, as they're planting churches, they're dealing with opposition. There's those who are getting away from the central theme of the word of God. So he's bringing them back to teach the whole counsel of God. He's telling them, raise up godly men, because no doubt there were many churches, because they usually met in homes in those days. So there are many smaller churches, and he wanted to raise up godly men to oversee each one of them. And then how to deal with false teachers. So that's the, here's what we believe part. And now it's going, in chapter two, he's going to move into how do we respond in light of the call to teach the whole counsel of God, in light of the call to raise up godly leaders, in light of the call to deal with false teaching. Then he's going to give something very practical. So if you have your outline, grab it. And I tell him the message, behavior becoming of belief, the practice of sound doctrine. So here's what we believe. Now here's how we behave. First, we're going to see in the life of, of, of an older man. You know, the last time I taught this before I taught it here was when I was pastoring in Santa Cruz. It was 17 years before. So I might have still been a young man then. Not anymore. I'm one of the old men. 
But so we're going to see the practice of sound doctrine in the life of an older man to be sober, be reverent, be temperate, be sound in faith, sound in love, and be patient. Then we're going to see in the life of the older woman. And I'm not going to give an age for who's young and who's old. I'm not doing that. That's what I ain't going to do. So you decide which side of that you're on. And it says reverent, be not, not to be slanders or gossips, not given to much wine, teachers of what is good. And then we see the young women. They're calling to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, sober-minded, and to be chaste, pure of mind and heart. And then it says in the life of the young man, and he really only gets one thing, to be sober-minded. You know why? Because that's all that dude can handle. <laughs> young men, you know, just, right? And so we're going to see some things after being sober-minded, what that looks like, and we'll go into some detail. And then at the end of it, we're going to see the actions of Christian servants or employees. How should we respond as believers to the authority that God has placed over us in the workplace? So these are very practical things. So everybody here is going to be addressed tonight. Because you're either a young man or an old man or a young woman or an old woman. And you may have a job where you work for somebody. So we're all going to be addressed tonight on how to practically live that out. See, as Christians, it's, again, you hear me say it all the time. If, if Monday doesn't change, Sunday doesn't count. So if we, we come to church as much as we want, and we can study God's word, and we can know it from one end to the other, but if it doesn't change our behavior, then, then something's missing. And if you've given your life to the Lord, and your heart, and your desires, and your passions don't change, something's wrong. And so he's given them this very clear and very direct exhortation on now how the, getting the church in order, and how should the people behave? So let's begin there in verse one, looking at behavior becoming a belief first in the life of an older man. But before he gets to that, there's verse one where he says, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Whenever you see the word but or therefore, you want to go back into the previous text because he, what he's saying is in light of what I just said, here's how you respond. When it says, therefore, you ask what it's there for. And when it says, but, he's contrasting the verses just previous. So the verse right before it says, they profess to know God, but in, wor in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So he says, look, they say they know God, but their behavior doesn't show it. They say they know God and they're acting like the world. And then he says, but, but you... Those of you true believers, but you, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So he's encouraging him, again, to uh, exhort the church in Crete. He's exhorting Timothy to, or, excuse, excuse me, Titus, to bring this to the believers. Titus is a young man. And by the way, when he got this letter, I promise you he was excited. Because Paul was his father in the faith, if you will. Paul had led him to the Lord. And now he's pastoring this church and pastoring overseeing churches on the island of Crete, which is a very godless place. And when they, no doubt when that letter was delivered to him, 
And he opened up that scroll, and as it began in the first chapter, the first thing we saw is Paul. It came from Paul. No doubt, no doubt he was excited to get that word of encouragement coming from the man who in his mind was his pastor and his father in the faith. So these words, these exhortations, it'd be like if I got something from Pastor Chuck Smith in the mail, or you know, somebody called me on the phone. I'd be excited to hear from them and to be encouraged by them. And so now he's telling them, but... As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now he's going to give them the way that the church ought to look. How, what, how should we be responding in the body of Christ? Now this is why the Bible tells us to forsake not the gathering ourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. This is why watching church on TV, again, if there's no other option, that's better than nothing, but it's not the equivalent of being in fellowship. Why is that? Because you have gifts I don't have. I may have gifts you don't have. We're called to minister one to another. And that's what he's going to talk about. Now, I remember when I taught this in Santa Cruz, the day after the message was over, four ladies came to my office and said, we want to start a Titus II ministry because they were older women who had a heart to minister to the younger women in the church. And so this is the example of how we should be you know, people should be discipling us and we should be discipling others. Who are you discipling and who's discipling you? And the hope would be those who've been walking with the Lord for some length of time can be a great resource and a great ministry to those who may be newer in their faith. So let's begin by looking again at the older men. It says that older men be sober. The word be sober there. In a city, again, overrun with depravity, keep in mind, overrun with drunkenness, over, overrun with infidelity, overrun with idolatry in the midst of all that. He says, you be sober. The word sober there means calm, well, balanced, a steady person in contrast to the wildness and flightiness of youth. Young people very often feel like they're invincible. I know I did. When I played football in college, I used to literally thought I could probably run through a brick wall and be okay. I felt sorry for the brick wall. You know, and when you're young, you think that you can just live however you want to live. And, you know, and even if something bad happens, I'll recover quickly. I'm going to be fine. And as we get older, we hopefully gain a little wisdom to recognize that that's dangerous. I don't know if you've seen this, that over 100,000 people under the age, between the ages of 18 and 40, died from fentanyl overdoses in the last 12 months. Number one cause of death in that age group, above cancer, car accidents, anything else, the number one cause of death is fentanyl. And why is that? Because there's this feeling of invincibility. They know it's killing people and yet they keep taking it. Those who've been walking with the Lord for some length of time should have a better understanding that we don't live recklessly, that we're calm and well-balanced, a steadiness that results from sound doctrine and spiritual maturity. You know, one of the things you see in people that are spiritually immature, men and women alike, and it doesn't matter your age, you can be 80 years old and spiritually immature, and you can be 20 years old and spiritually mature. But often, you know, if you've been walking with the Lord for some length of time, but what happens is when you're spiritually immature, your relationship with the Lord is like this. It's up and down. One day you're on fire for God, then the next day something bad happens, you're mad at God, and you're just up and down and all over the place. And as a spiritually mature believer, we should be somebody whose walk with God is steady. It's unwavering, amen? And that's what he's exhorting. He says, older men, be sober, be well-balanced, be a steady person, 
Again, in contrast to the wildness of youth, steadiness that results from sound doctrine, from knowing the word of God, and from spiritual maturity. You know, they say the best, one of the best teachers is experience. And it doesn't have to be your own experience. Your own experience is the best, of course, but even the experience of others. My, my dad would speak into my life and he would share things with me that he'd been through. And it would, it would bless me and it would prepare me. And these older men are to be calm and well-balanced. And again, in contrast to the flightiness of youth. Then it says they're reverent. The word reverent is serious-minded, dignified, respectable. Look, when... Now again, he's talking mainly, it's a pastoral epistle and, sure, and certainly... One of the main focal points is, are the pastors themselves, but he's speaking to all, the entire church. And whenever you see you know, prerequisites or, or things for a pastor, it should be a desire for every believer. If it's the thing that a pastor must be to be a pastor, it should be something we all desire to be. And pastor just means servant. Pastors aren't celebrities. They're no better than anybody else. They're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. But reverence is something that we've lost. What happened to yes, sir, and yes, ma'am? Where'd that go? Yeah, dude. People call, I have 18 year olds calling me dude. I'm not a dude, man. What's up with you, man? Right? I mean, I, I hear guys calling girls dude. There's a lack of reverence. There's a lack of, of, of the way that we treat each other. And he's saying, look, a, a man, an older man, a spiritually mature man should be a man who is reverent, should not be a clown, one who commands respect by the way he lives his life. He acts his age. Now look, there's nothing wrong with having a sense of humor. I think a sense of humor is a good thing. And even in the pulpit, I think it's okay. But you know, this is not, time, this is not stand-up comedy hour. Amen? When we stand behind the, what we want, you know, natural you know, humor comes out. And that's okay. But I know guys will write eight jokes to begin their message. No, this is not, you know, this is not the open mic at the local bar, amen? What is this? We're opening the word of God. This is having an impact on people's eternity. And the word of God should be handled with care and reverence, amen? We should revere the word of God. By the way, respect is earned, not demanded. If you're having to demand respect, you don't have it. But you know, if you live in such a way that people see your life and they respect you, they say, you know, there's someone who walks with the Lord. There's someone whose relationship with God, there, there's a reverence there. there. There's a sobriety to their life. Again, older men are to be respected, but again, true respect is not demanded, but earned. And again, we should live in such a way that there's respect. You know, it's interesting. I've, d I've done marriage counseling with thousands. Of, I've been a pastor 34 years, so lots of couples. And you know, the main verse I always take people to is, husbands love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And husbands and wives, see that you respect your husbands. And so women want to be loved and men want to be respected. And often women will say, I'll respect him when he earns it. And I'll say, well, how about if he said to you, well, I'll love you when you earn it. You wouldn't like that, would you? But th that's the desire is for respect. And you know what? We should be men who live in such a way 
that we are respected. Now again, it's all about the Lord. It's not about us, but we should live lives that are respectable. Now notice it not only says sober and reverent, but temperate. Temperate means self-controlled, not subject to high highs and low lows. Doesn't get so easily worked up about things. He's much more stable. Uh, Seeing things come and go, doesn't panic, knows that this will pass, knows that God is in control. He's been in the storms before and he's seen God take him to the other side. So when the storm comes, he doesn't panic. Now, that's why I'm concerned. I will say this. I get concerned, especially when Christians do this, when they're all panicked about what's going on in the world. Now, I get it that when we look at what's going on in the world, the world needs Jesus. Amen? And, and you know, our country and what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and all those things. And look, we should be praying for Ukraine. Amen? And we should be praying. But here's the reality. We shouldn't be panicking. Because God is in control. Amen? And because God is in control, God will bring us out the other side of this. And I see people that are losing their minds over the gas. I get it. Gas is expensive. Stay home and hang out with your wife and save some money. Amen? But the reality is that we see these things and you see people getting all tuned up. But you know, the Bible says in the last days, they'll call it good, evil, and evil, good. And guys, we're living in a time where that's what's happening. And so we should stand up for the truth, but we don't have to be afraid. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. It's okay. God's in control. My wife used to say this to me all the time. She still does. When we're going through difficulty, and, and if you've been going to church any length of time, you know we're going through the most difficult time of our lives right now. Next Thursday will be six months since our 28-year-old son went to heaven. And I got a thing on an eight, eight years old, eight years, eight years ago. Today, I picked him up and his brother up from two different U-turns and it looks so healthy and God was doing such good things in their life. And it comes on your Facebook page and just rips your heart out again. But heaven's better. Amen. And what my wife says to me often, she'll say, babe, when we're going through tough times, you know what I do? I look to the Lord and then I look at you. And she said, if you're not panicking, I don't panic. But you know what? That's how it should be. Guys, amen. We should be the spiritual leaders in our house so that our wife can look at us and say, my husband's not panicking because he knows that God's on the throne and he knows that God's in control. And he's been, we've been through this before and our God is faithful. Amen. And so as older men, we should have that, that solid, temperate, sober, reverence. Then it says, sound in faith. Having witnessed firsthand the grace of God, having stepped out on faith and seen God come through, you know, again, experience is the best teacher. So you've stepped out in faith and you've seen God show up. Then you've stepped out in faith and you've seen God show up and you've cried out to the Lord in desperation and you've seen the Lord showed up and you've gone through great difficulties and you've seen God show up. And you know what? When that happens over time, you know by experience that God is faithful. You know it from his word and you know it from the way that he has shown up in your life. And so what does that do? That makes you sound in faith. I say this to you guys all the time. My favorite Bible teachers to listen to are, are men who've been through it and have not wavered. I told you that one of my favorite Bible teachers is John Corson. He lost his wife in a car accident About 12 years later, he lost his daughter in a car accident. About 15 years later, he lost his son to cancer. 
And that brother has not, now he's grieved, but he has not wavered. You know, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. It's easy to say that you have faith in God when you're on the cruise ship to heaven and everything's perfect, but it's another thing to continue to praise God in the midst of the greatest storms because you know that he is faithful. Where else are we going to turn? Who else has the words of eternal life? And so older men should be sound in faith. Their faith has been tested. And we can see that their faith can be trusted. They're not wavering. They're not being blown from one side to the other by every wind of doctrine, everything that comes along. They don't panic at the results of some election. Here's the good news. No matter who's in the White House, God's still on the throne. Amen? And again, we should vote biblically. We should vote pro-life. We should vote for things that are honoring to the Lord. But no matter who wins, God's in control. And that should bring peace. And we should be sound in faith. Notice it also says sound in love, in faith, in love. So sound in love. Now, have you ever met an old guy that's really cynical? You ever met those guys? It's almost a, it's almost a meme of old guys. Get off my lawn. You know, that kind of thing, right? You know, old guys are just, ah, Hate everybody under a hundred. You know what I mean? Just, ah, there's that attitude. And young man, the world's going to chew you up and spit you out. Ah, yeah, and they just got that attitude, right? And you can see that that happens. You know, you've lived a long life and you're just kind of fed up. Had enough. Well, that shouldn't be so of Christians. Amen? As Christians, we should be sound in love. I truly believe this. I believe the longer we walk with the Lord, the more tender our hearts ought to get. The longer we walk with him and the more trials we've walked through with him and the more faithful we've seen him become, the more we should love God and the more we should love people. The greatest, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Or love God and love people. And if you truly love God, you will love people. And if you love people, you won't be, ah, get off my lawn. You won't be that guy. You won't be that cynical guy with a, ah, you know, just mad all the time. As believers, we should be sound, especially older men are called to be sound in love. We should not grow harder. Instead, not, you know, crotchety and cranky and angry and bitter. We should instead have hearts that are more and more tender. You know what? Every day that we live on this planet, we're one day closer to standing in front of Jesus. Amen. And in some ways, that should, that should both bring a little fear into our hearts as to be faithful, but also some excitement that soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Amen? There still should be that softness. It's sweet to see an older person who, though they've been through great difficulty and trials, who are soft and gentle, have a love for God and a love for others. My dad uh, and I served at Calvary San Jose in the 90s. Uh, so I was, a, I was an assistant pastor for 15 years, 10 years in Lancaster, and then five years in San Jose. And I was on staff in San Jose with Rob McCoy and uh, Manny Olivas and a bunch of other guys who planted churches, and we were all there together. And my dad was one of the assistants to Pastor Don as well. My dad taught the seniors, and I taught the youth group. And the seniors were 70 and above, and some of the people were over 100. Okay, imagine a room full of jacks, Okay. <laughs> So my dad would have me come over there and teach sometimes. 
because uh, it was before, they had like a Sunday school class at 9 a.m. before 10 o'clock church. And then you'd go in and they're all dressed in suits and they were ready for church and they, all, they sang hymns. And I felt like I was back in the, in the 70s, back in the late 60s at the Baptist church where I got saved in Wilmington. But whenever I would go in there, here's what I loved. And I loved it. First of all, I would leave there with a bunch of lipstick all over my face from the old ladies kissing me. <laughs> Because that's what they do. Oh, pastor, we're praying for you. You're teaching the young people. We just, we're just praying for you. And they meant it. And they'd ask how they can pray for you. And they were sweet and they were kind and they were gentle and they were loving. And so whenever my dad would ask me, do you want to? I couldn't wait to get in there. Because you know what? Here they have been walking. Some of them have been walking with the Lord for 80 years. These are seasoned saints. Amen. And there's something special about that, having walked with the Lord a long time. You know, it's, I remember there was a man who was 101 who got married to a woman who was 98. My dad did the wedding. I was there. They'd both been married and widowed for a long time. And then when they said, till death do us part, it didn't mean very long, right? <laughs> it's reality. They were that close to heaven. But what I loved is just, their, just the sweetness not that crotchety, cranky old man, but spirit-filled. I've been walking with the Lord a long time. How that peace that surpasses all understanding. I've been washed in the grace of God. And I just, as long as I've got left, I want to love on some young people. And I want to tell them all the things that the Lord's done in my life. See, that's what an older man should be like in the church. He should be a source of encouragement, an example for the younger men to follow. An example on how he treats his wife for younger men to see how to treat their wives. An example of, of the kind of, uh, of reverence and the attitude and his heart and his love for God's word. As we grow older, we should become more kind and more loving and more like Jesus. Amen? The older we get. Now notice he finishes off there in verse 2. He says, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. The word hupomone there is what the word is in the original language. And it says... It's a, it's a sign of spiritual maturity, not striving. Everything doesn't have to be done in five minutes. Amen? And here's what happens, too. As you're older, you learn to wait upon the Lord. And, and when we're younger, we want everything right now. I said it on Sunday. We want our faith to go in a microwave, and God has it in a crock pot. Amen? We want it to happen in 15 seconds, and it might happen over 15 years. And so we want what we want right now, and God's doing a work in us. So we need to learn to wait upon the Lord. And someone that's lived with the Lord for a length of time has seen God, that his, his way comes in his perfect time. We pray in our time, God answers in his time. And his time is perfect. Amen? And sometimes he says no. That might be easier because sometimes he says wait. This older man who's patient has entered into God's rest. He's willing to wait upon the Lord. I know people who've been praying about marrying somebody. They've been wanting to be married for 20 years. And they've prayed, you know, almost daily for 20 years. And they don't know why their spouse isn't here yet. And here's the reality. It's better to be single than to be married to the wrong person. God, had, God didn't answer my prayer. Yes, he did. He got you away from that one that would have been bad. Amen. We want to wait for God's perfect will and settle for nothing less than God's highest. And he's saying that they should be sound in patience. One who has experienced God's grace has learned to be patient. Who would say to a young man, it's okay, son. God's always right on time. Impatience is a sign of immaturity. 
When you're mature, you're patient. When you're immature, you're impatient. So if you have a lack of patience, you need to grow in spiritual maturity. Again, they can share their experience. They can give practical advice. So there's the life of the older man. Notice what it says there. Sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Now he's going to talk about the older woman. You decide which one of these you're in, because I'm not doing that. Notice it says there of older women. The older woman, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. Now, older women would be women who've already raised their children. So they've been through that. They've been married long enough to understand how a godly marriage should look and work through, through decades of experience. They've raised children. They've gone through trials with their husband. So they've seen, you know, what that looks like. They, they've had that experience. And then it says there, again, of these older women, that they be reverent in behavior. Now, keep in mind, older women don't retire from being, you know, you may not be the, you know, have the little kids in the house anymore, but God wants to continue to use you to minister above all else to the younger women, to be an example to them. There may be a lot of younger women that don't, have never seen what a, what a godly woman looks like, have never had that example. Same too for younger men. Lot, some of them grew up without a dad or without a godly dad. And the older men in the church are to be an example to them. And the older women in the church are to be an example to the younger women, something that they can follow, somebody that can speak into their lives. Someone that'll take them out to lunch and encourage them. Someone that might even come over and say, let me just babysit the kids and you and your husband go out and get dinner. And the younger women are saying amen and amen to that. <laughs> now, what's happening is Crete is filled with infidelity. Crete is, is a godless place. And in the midst of Crete, there are now godly families. And that's something that hadn't been there before. The church, again, is only 30 or 40 years old. So they're being an example to the world around them. But if they look to the world, they see one example. And when they look to the Lord and they look to godly people, they get a different example to follow. Making disciples, there needs to be a Christian example and instruction among young wives and mothers. Older women to bring a biblical perspective to the younger generation to nurture a godliness among the young. You know, you live in a time right now where here's what you hear. Oh, you, oh, you stay home and watch your kids? Really? And they act like that's of no value. Now, if you have a career, that's what you knew on the Lord. But I'll tell you what. We should never look down on somebody who makes a conscious choice to make their kids the priority. Can I get an amen to that? And you know what? We need, and I, tell, I used to tell my wife this. My wife, would, the only time she worked, she worked at the schools where my kids went to school because she wanted to be with them. And I told her early on, look, I will work three jobs if I have to, but I, the, the impact, the money that God allows me to make pays the bills and we praise God for it, but the impact you have on our children will last a lifetime. Amen? It's not a biblical saying, but it, there's some truth in it. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. I think that the greatest impact we have on our children is raising them in a Christian home. And I thank God for my godly mom because my godly mom was a prayer warrior. 
And my godly mom was so faithful and she's such an example to me. And I praise God that I had that example. And it says, reverend, again, that they be in behavior that becomes holiness, living a life consecrated to God, unlike the world living for the Lord. Now, when it says reverent there, it means in several ways, in attitude, in outward actions, but also in the way that they dress. Amen? I tell young women, when I was a youth pastor, I used to say, what you use for bait will determine what you catch. So if you want a guy that only cares about your body, you dress that way, and that's the kind of guy you'll get. And don't be surprised when that's all he cares about. And then after, you know, your body ages a little bit, he finds a younger model and casts you to the side. You know why? Because he never cared about you. He only cared about the thing you caught him with. Amen. So you know what is attractive to a godly man? A godly woman. You know what's attractive to a godly woman? A godly man. Amen. And he's saying of these older women, and, and this should be true of younger women as well, to be modest, to dress in a way that's not going to stumble somebody else, to dress in a way that's not provocative, not in a way that only your husband should see you dress that way, nobody else. And so there's a reverence there, and they're being an example. One who pursues and walks in holiness, and one who has inward character, along with outward actions. Look for those younger to make disciples. Notice it says the next thing is they're not, it says they're not slanderers. Reverend in behavior, not slanderers. The word there in the Greek is diabolos. It says not devils. They're not from the devil. Do you know that God says in God's word, he, he renounces fornication and, and, uh, you know, fornication and adultery and homosexuality. If you combine all three of those together, he talks more about gossip because God hates it. And when we slander other people and when we talk, just keep in mind that it's right on that same level in the word of God. But for some reason, we think that's okay. And he's saying older women should not be slanderers. They shouldn't be attacking people. They shouldn't be gossiping. They shouldn't be tearing other people's character down. As believers, we should be lifting people up, not tearing them down. Amen? Should be kind and loving. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So it's not surprising to me that the word for slander is diablos. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. One of the things he uses the most, depressions at an all-time high, especially with COVID and people couldn't go to, to counseling and they couldn't get, you know, treated. So anxiety's through the roof. Depression's through the roof. Suicide's through the roof. Drug use is through the roof. All that's happened because the ability for people to minister to them was taken away in a large way. A lot of churches shut down or just now opening back up. So when that's taken away, what happens? They listen to the accuser. And as believers, we shouldn't be accusing others. We should be encouraging others. Amen? Now, there's a time when someone is walking outside of God's will. In Matthew 18, we come alongside them. But we come alongside them to exhort them and even rebuke them if necessary. But we do it in love to restore them, not to destroy them. Amen? That's what he says here. These older women are to be reverent in behavior, and not slanderers. Older women to not fall into temptations of idleness, of gossip, and slander, and false accusations. You know, one of the things that can happen when we get older, we can get more time on our hands. Again, not in the Bible, but a true statement. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Sometimes we have too much time on our hands, 
We start doing things we shouldn't be doing. And so in, that, in the midst of that, I think we should be looking for ways to minister to people, to, to take some of that time we have now because maybe we're not working a full-time job. Now notice it says, not given to much wine. So it says to the older men that they be sober and not given to much wine. You know what's amazing? I looked this up. Alcohol, alcoholism is very high among older women because they have more time on their hands or sometimes they've lost their husbands. Another potential temptation of idleness. Not to be idle gossips, slanderers, or drinkers, but living lives set apart unto holiness, sanctified, set apart unto the Lord. Again, I, I know, look, I'm not going to be speaking to silence and I'm not going to overrule what the Word of God says. If you have a glass of wine with dinner with your husband, and that's between you and the Lord. But the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, who has woe? Right? Who has redness of the eyes? Right? He who lingers long at the wine. I love what Pastor Chuck says. Look, if, if nothing good can come of it, if God won't be glorified through it, if I can possibly stumble others by doing it, and if everybody in the church followed my example, what would it look like? So to me, I haven't drank alcohol. First of all, I never cared for it, praise God. But I haven't drank alcohol in like 37 years. And guess what? I don't need spirits. I have the spirit. Amen? Now, again, it's between you and the Lord, but I'll tell you what, for me, I want to err on the side of holiness. And I'm, going, I'm not being a legalistic. That's between you and the Lord. You do what you think is best. But I can tell you this, are there people that struggle with alcohol? What's the answer? It's at an all-time high. And you know what? As believers, we should not be a, somebody who would stumble somebody who struggles with that. Notice it also says, not only sober, not giving to much wine, but teachers of good things. They're passing on godly wisdom gained through experience to the next generation. So we see what they're not to do. You know, they're, you know, they're not to be, you know, drunkards. They're not to be given to wine. They're not to be slanderers. They're not to take that extra time they may have. Instead, they're to be those who pass on good things, teachers of good things. Many have seen not even one good example in their homes and in their lives growing up. And it could be that God wants you to be that person to a younger woman. What ended up happening at our church in Santa Cruz is these four women said, we're going to start a Titus 2 ministry. And they started having these like teas or lunches. And what they would do is they would invite the younger women and the older women, and they would have half and half on each table. And they just made themselves available. And they were open to minister to them if they wanted it. And look, I want to say this to younger women and those who watch this or hear this later. If someone wants to avail that to you, take advantage of it. Amen? Because I promise you, there's things that we can all learn. So in the life of the older woman, she's reverent. She's not a slander. She's not given to much wine. She's a teacher of good things. She passionately gives godly wisdom to the next generation. Now in the life of the younger woman, what does it say? It's right there in verse 4 and 5. It says that they admonish the young women to love their husbands. To make marriage the priority in their lives next only to their relationship with the Lord. And what happens, again, we live in a world right now where that's old-fashioned. What, what are we doing? Go back to the 1950s? I wish. Amen? <laughs> you mean when families all hung out together and everybody needed to look at all their electronics all day and, you know, you sat down and had dinner like a family and you, you, you know, praise God for that. 
And so the exhortation here is to tell the younger women to love their husbands. Sometimes I wonder why many even get married when they make their relationship with their spouse such a secondary issue. Somebody sent me a video of this show and they, they get married without meeting and then as soon as they meet, they marry and then they, you see them two weeks later going, well, well, I've got my friends, I've got my job, I've got my hobbies, I got this, I got this, I got this. They say the 57 things they're gonna put in front of their marriage. I'm like, well, why were you on this show to get married? I don't understand. And the truth is that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Amen? And husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives and wives see that you love and respect your husbands. And the saddest thing to me is that, that this is the closest thing to heaven on earth in a lot of ways is in marriage. Marriage isn't easy because you got people in them, amen? But at the same time, it's such a blessing from the Lord that God created us, male and female, so that we could come together and become one flesh. And the exhortation is to remind them, love your husband. Make sure that you make your husband a priority. Again, it's often behind the career and the hobbies and other friends, and, and it's just tragic. Teach a younger woman that their marriage is to be the priority, second only to their walk with the Lord. Don't give your husbands the leftovers. Don't worry, we're getting to the men in a minute, okay? But don't give your husband what's left. Don't, don't, don't live your entire day, and at the end of the day, give him whatever's left over. You should make them a priority. In Crete, people like today were very self-absorbed and self-centered. It was a city known to be filled with liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And marriages then and still in many parts of the world today were arranged. So they were arranged marriages. I've been to India seven times teaching up to a thousand pastors at a time how to study and teach the Bible. And what's amazing to me is I would always do this when I would be in a room and sometimes there would be women there who were gonna be overseeing women's ministries and churches. And I would always say, how many of you are married? And they'd raise their hand. And I'd say, how many of your marriage was arranged? And virtually all of them. And I'm talking now, in, the, in today's day. And, I, would, and I, I videotaped and interviewed a couple of men and a couple of women. I said, tell me what you think about arranged marriage. And one of them, the woman was so spot on. This is before my daughter was married. I told her, repeat it. I took it home and made my daughter watch it. I loved it. But what she said was, look, my parents love the Lord. God knows what's best for me. And I know they're looking for and praying about who the man's going to be. And I know God's going to bring me the perfect man. So I don't have to look at any other men. I don't have to be distracted by that. I can just focus on Jesus and know that in God's perfect timing, he's going to bring me the, the man for me. And I said, so are you married? She said, I got married uh, two years ago. And he's the most wonderful, godly man on the planet. I said, when did you meet him? She said, the day before the wedding. <laughs> Do you know what the divorce rate is in India? 4% pretty amazing. When we pick out our own people, how we doing? <laughs> Amen. But the point here is that marriage is something that shouldn't be entered into lightly or unadvisedly. And it should be, and love is a choice. It's not just a feeling. Amen. Why do I fell out of love? No, you don't fall out of love. You choose to rebel against God and leave the, the commitment you made before the creator of the universe. Now, if you've done that, God can forgive you. I want to encourage you that he can forgive you. But marriage then, it's again, then we're arranged and, and I'm all for it. 
I, 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 was, I would have done arranged marriage for my daughter if I could have got away with it. But we did. We prayed for the spouses for our kids. And when I met my son-in-law, I said, I've been praying for you for 19 years in answer to 19 years of prayer. See, they had to learn or choose to love the person that mom and dad picked out for them. They had to just choose to love them. Older women, some of whom may have had their husbands go to be with the Lord, all had endured difficult times. And some of those older women, no doubt, sit down with some of those younger women and said, I'd give anything to have another day with my husband. You know, my husband went to be with the Lord five years ago, and I would do anything to be able to sit down with him and just have a meal with him. And, you know, you still have your husband. Don't let that get by you. Don't, don't miss that. A lot of my customers have found out about my son. I was talking, to, I was with a client today and she said, I'm so sorry to hear about your son. And she said, and I, you know, and of course they don't know what to say. It's hard. And I just try to encourage them and love on them. And at the end of it, I always say the same thing. I said, go home and hug on all your kids. Whatever else, whatever else you're making more important than your wife and your children, stop it and go home and love on your family because you don't have the promise of tomorrow. Amen. And so the exhortation here again is, is the older woman could say to them, look, I was with my husband all these years and, and again, it was wonderful, but it still went too fast and I wish I could go back to where you are and give that godly advice. They could say, I've been where you are. I've come through it. Also, that time is short and cherish it while you can. The older woman to admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to make their marriage a priority. But notice what they also say. Look at the next thing it says the older women are to do. Or the younger women, excuse me, to, they're to tell the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. To make their children a priority. To see that loving and raising godly children as a calling and a ministry. You know how kids spell love? You ready? T-I-M-E. Kids spell love, T-I-M-E. One of the things that, that I struggled with a little bit when I was younger is my dad was a CEO of a company and a pastor at the same time. And the church had gotten fairly large and his job was very demanding. He had offices in Japan and Germany. And, all, so, he'd be full, and so when I was growing up, my dad was a full-time pastor until I was about seven years old. And after that, he had a full-time, I might've been eight years old. He got a full-time job. Well, I played football from the time I was seven until I was in my early twenties. I played from second grade through college. And I think my dad made it to two games. Now I'm fine. You get over it. But I'll tell you what happened to me is I knew, and I remember my, I remember my last high school game. My dad said, I am coming no matter what. And I was so excited to know he was there. It was our homecoming game. We were playing for the championship of our league. And I had the best game of my life. And I just remember I blocked a punt. I had two interceptions. I had 17 tackles. I just, I just had the game of my life. I was playing out of my mind. And I was thinking the whole time, my dad's here to see me play the best game I've ever played. I'm so excited. Then the game ended. And down from the stands came my mom and my sister and my brother. And my dad wasn't there. And you know what? I, I, it was those things that made me say, I'm never going to do that to my kids. And so when there would be a two o'clock game, three hours from our house, when the freshman football team, you know, they played so early, there might be one dad in the stands that was going to be me. I would make sure that I would arrange everything else around it so I could be there. Why? Because kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Amen? They don't want any stuff. They want you. They don't want a car. They don't want all the toys you think. They just want you. By the way, when you see those uh, military people come home and their children, oh man, 
Are you made out of steel if you're not crying at those? Amen? Where, the, where the, they come home and the kids just lose their minds because they love their parents. And so she's saying, that, look, to love your children, to make them a priority. For the wife and the mother, her home is to be her number one priority. It is her first place of ministry. Above any ministry she does in the church. Above any ministry she does anywhere else. The number one calling of a wife is to love her and minister to her husband and to her children above her career, her hobbies, her friends, her animals. Love your animals. I think I told you, somebody said, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your son. You know, my cat died, so I know how you feel. Um, I don't think so. We love our animals. When they die, we're heartbroken. But it's not, sorry, it's not close. Amen? It's just not. It's not. While society may look down on the calling of being a loving wife and mother, Seeing it as a lacking of real accomplishment, the truth is that there is no more strategic position of influence in the world than being a mom. There's no greater place. Godly moms far more influential in their children's lives than any teacher or friend or elected official will ever be. Being a godly wife and mother impacts not only society, but eternity. It says in 1 John, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. There's nothing we should want more than to see our kids following Jesus. No amount of earthly riches, no amount of worldly accomplishment can touch children's love that love the Lord. For a godly woman, nothing can compare to the joy of raising godly children. There's nothing greater or more eternally significant than a woman can invest her time and energy and gifting in than being a godly wife and mother. It says in Proverbs 31, who can find a virtuous wife, her worth is far above rubies. Now look, I know we live in an expensive place. I know many of you have to work to make ends meet. I get it, and I'm not condemning you in any way, shape, or form. But what I want to make sure that we understand is this. Don't let anybody ever condemn you for making the choice to be a mom who stays home full-time with her kids. Amen? We want to we celebrate that. We don't want to tear that down. Few things are as foolish as to neglect the God-ordained calling of a loving wife and a mother in order to pursue worldly accomplishments, wealth, and praise. While there is no higher calling than to be a godly mother, it is something that young women didn't always grasp on their own. By the way, husbands, if your wife has a heart to stay home, if you can do it in any way, shape, or possible, you make sure that you provide for your family. If you have to work three jobs, you go do it. Amen? And then hear one guy say amen in the whole room. I'm not saying it's Paul. I get it. We, if we lived in Nebraska, we all could do it. But we live in Southern California and we pay a lot of money for houses. I get it. I'm not condemning that. I understand. And God may have you in that situation. But you, you be supportive of letting your wife spend as much time with your kids as possible. Can I get an amen to that? It's wrong to be married and not make your husband a priority, and it's wrong to be a mother who doesn't make her children a priority. I just came on Thursday night. I thought we were going to read a genealogy, man. I'm just getting beat up. <laughs> There's no greater joy and satisfaction at the end of life than to first have walked with God than to have been a godly wife and mother who loved her husband, who raised her children in the ways of the Lord. To be a mom is an incredible blessing. To have a a child knit together by God in your womb. 
to give birth to a brand new life, to love, feed, care for, clothe, protect, nurture this precious little life from the day your child is born into adulthood, to watch them grow, to mend their wounds, to instruct and disciple them, to truly love unconditionally even after they've moved out and had children of their own. Again, ladies, don't ever let the world convince you that there's anything it has to offer as eternally significant as being a godly wife and mother. Same time, single ladies and those without children know that the Lord has a special calling on your life as well. Be faithful to do what God has called you to do. Be it as a godly wife, a godly wife and mother, or one whose passions can be fully focused on him. Notice what else she says there. Admonish them to love their children, to be discreet. Again, sober-minded. It keeps coming up. Self-controlled, wise and prudent in their conduct. To live a disciplined life. By the way, undisciplined parents often raise undisciplined kids. Amen? I would go to the Little League field and I would be blown away when my kids are playing Little League that I would hear nine-year-olds cussing out their parents and flipping off their parents and screaming at their parents. And I remember one time there was an older guy, he had a cane and he, he had, you know, and his son was flipping him off from the mound and cussing at him. I said, you know, I'll take that cane and swat him for you if you'd like. You know, there's nothing wrong with the board of education being applied to the seat of learning when necessary. <laughs> Amen. If we don't raise, if we don't teach them to have, if they don't respect you, they're not going to respect their teachers. They're not going to respect their bosses. They're not going to respect the police. Amen. I think we're seeing a wave of that right about now. Amen. And so the exhortation here is let's raise godly kids. Let's discipline them. Older women were to admonish the younger women to live sober-minded, self-controlled, and disciplined lives. Notice it says there right after that, Admonish them to love that, to be discreet, chaste. Again, chaste is pure of mind, heart, and thought. Remember living among the depravity of the Cretan culture. Christian wife is to be faithful to her husband and her mind and heart as well as her actions. It's to live a life of purity in the way she dresses, in the words she speaks, in the thoughts she entertains. It's sad that Christian women feel like they've got to dress like the world. We don't want to dress for the world. We want to dress for the Lord. Amen? A woman of modesty who does not stumble men with her appearance or flirt with her words. Her appearance, her speech, and her thoughts are honoring unto God and faithful to her husband. You know, I know this is a small thing. I do have a Facebook account and it's, it's full because in, in ministry, you, you know, uh, people from, but my Facebook is David and Lynette Johnston. You know why? Because I want everybody to know that if they write me, they're writing my wife at the same time. Amen? And I, will, and I don't spend time alone with women, and I would never say anything to anybody that I wouldn't say with my wife standing right next to me and my grandkids on my lap. Amen? And so we need to, we need to live in that way. Because the enemy will do anything he can to destroy your marriage and to, to draw you away. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Now notice what it says here. Oh, it's even getting worse. Look what it says. Now it says, good and obedient to their own husbands. What? Obedient to what? Well, first it says homemakers. Again, 1950s. So workers in their home. 
cleanliness and order of the home, feeding of her family. These are priorities of the godly wife and mother. She is the one who truly makes a house a home. Now, if any of you have been to my house, my house is a home because of my wife. She leaves to go to Colorado for a week, and you would think a tornado went through our house. But my house, this is like a model home. Why? Because she feels, for her, that's what she's called to do. And our kids say that all the time. We did a video for her 60th birthday, and every one of my kids and all the grandkids all said this, at some point said, you make our house a home. And you know what? Praise God for that. Amen? And I'm thankful. It's not easy to raise a family, discipline the children, keep the house clean, and have dinner on the table, but know that God not only admonishes the young women to do so, to the older women and his word, but will reward those who are faithful. A mother's love is not only heard in her words, but it's seen in her actions. I know for my wife and my mom, both the women I know the best, and my daughter, a clean and comfortable home and family fed and cared for is a way that they express their love to their family. It's often little things that reflect a mother's love. It's funny the things you remember. So my mom, if we ever had every team I was on my whole life, my mom was a team mom. You remember that? You have team moms. My, my mom was always a team mom. Whenever we had a classroom, a classroom mom, my mom was the classroom mom. I remember I'd be at football practice, covered in mud, it'd be raining, and I would get home, and my mom would be waiting next to the dryer <laughs> with big, huge towels in the dryer so that as soon as she pulled them out, they're nice and hot, she'd wrap me up in them, and I'd walk in the house, there'd be chili, hot chili on the table and chocolate chip cookies in the oven. You know what that means? She loves my, her son. Amen? I would come home for lunch every day because I, I could jump the fence. I would jump the fence and have lunch with my mom every day. And you know what? Because, and again, praise God for godly moms. Amen? And a bunch of you are going, no, I got to go home and clean and make chili. And I got to... <laughs> <laughs> when my dad couldn't be there, my mom always was. She was in the stands for every game. She loved me unconditionally. Even when I rolled my car on my 16th birthday, the day I got my license. Uh, with busy schedules, kids going in all different directions, it's not always easy or even possible. But it should be the desire of a godly wife and mother to truly make her house a home. It says, admonish them to be good. The word good there can be translated kind. She doesn't rule over her children and household with an iron fist. But as it says in Proverbs 31, 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and her tongue is the law of kindness. Again, it's a tall order to clean a house, for a clean house, a warm meal and a kind heart. And husbands, you make sure you do everything you can to, make that, to help make that happen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good, I also believe, points to the fact that a godly wife and mother helps establish the difference between good and evil in the eyes of their children, both by what she teaches them and how she lives in front of them. Whenever I do a wedding, uh, here's one of the prayers I always pray, and I also pray this whenever we dedicate babies. I always pray that the husband, that the man would be an example of what a, of what a, a young boy would want to grow up to and what his daughter would aspire to marry one day. And that a young boy would see his mom as an example of, of, of the kind of woman he would want to marry one day. And that the daughter would say, this is the kind of woman I want to be when I grow up. We should be the best examples for our kids. My parents were my heroes outside of Jesus. And I'm thankful for that. Again, it points to the fact, both what, we, what she teaches and how she lives before them, 
again, were called to be good. Now remember, they were living amongst a bunch of evil people. Don't lose sight of the context. Cretans, evil, wicked people. You be godly in the midst of it. We live in California. Let's be godly in the midst of it. Then it says, admonish them to be obedient to their own husbands. I've had women tell me, I'm taking that out of the marriage vows. Get that out of there. I ain't obeying. Get that obey out of there. I said, then go to a justice of the peace because I'm not doing the wedding because that's in the Bible. Can I get an amen? Go get a justice of the peace. You can have them say whatever you want. But that's what the Bible says. While the wife is to be busy at home and is her husband, that God is called to be the spiritual leader in his home. Now, does it mean that women are less than men? What's the answer? Absolutely not. And you know what? It doesn't even mean that the man's more spiritually mature than the woman because that's not always the case. It's probably the case half the time. Amen? But here's the point. It doesn't mean the man's smarter. It doesn't mean he's better. It doesn't mean he's more godly. It just means that God has called him to be the spiritual leader in his home. And so he has that responsibility. And so it's not something he should be arrogant about, but he should be in awe of that he's going to be accountable for Almighty God one day for how he treated his wife. Here's what I tell people, men often. If you want to see how you're doing spiritually, go look at your wife. Is she blooming? Is she blessed? Or is she struggling? Men, we're called to be the leaders in our home. And the young women would submit to their husbands, acknowledge the support, his role as the leader in the home. You know what? I found this to be true. If a man loves the Lord, loves his wife, protects and provides and serves, it's easy for that woman to submit to him. If he submitted to the Lord, it's easy for the wife to submit to him. Amen? And I know it's, and that's why you take your time when you decide who you're going to marry. Amen? I married this guy and he's a schlub. Well, you married him. That's your fault. Can I get an amen to that? That's why pre-marriage counseling is good and being on your knees and praying is good. And you want, you know what you want? You want a man that loves the Lord more than he loves you. And guys, you want a woman who loves the Lord more than she, than, than she loves you. And that's when a godly marriage takes place. Ephesians 5 says, wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So you submit to your husband, but your husband lays down his life for you. He's called to serve you and to love you. Shouldn't have to battle his wife for control, it's easy for a wife, again, to submit to a husband who is willing to lay down his life for her. Notice it says at the end of there that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Their actions in the midst of depraved and evil people should reflect that there is indeed something radically different about those who follow Christ. I've had people say this about my wife. They'd say, oh, so your wife just stayed home the whole time and just took care of the kids. Yeah. Absolutely. Priority in my life. How did she find that fulfilling? Oh, uh, oh as opposed to selling advertising? <laughs> That's what I do for a living. I'm coworkers that sell advertising. And a lot of them have been married three times. And their kids are all over the place. And there's no relationship. And you're going to wake up one day and realize what was really the priority. And again, I'm, in some cases, they have to work. And I get that. But you can, you can work, but still make the Lord first, and then your husband, and then your children. Amen? Make that more important than anything else. God will bless that. 
and shows how important it is for the older women to teach these things, for the younger women to learn them. When Christians don't live a biblical and godly manner, the word of God may be blasphemed by unbelievers. They'll just see you as hypocrites. We're running out of time, and I can't skip over the younger guys because that wouldn't be fair to the younger women. Amen? It is sad to see the way family problems and even divorces among Christians cause unsaved people to sneer at the Bible. But notice it says, young man, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Linking word again in the same way after the same manner as there is a proper behavior becoming of belief among older women, older men, younger women, and so too there is among younger men. Exhort younger men to live sober-minded. The word there is to implore to invoke, to beseech. Sober-minded means that they're under self-control. Teach these young men that they can control themselves, that they must, they must control themselves. It's not an option. You have young people, I just can't control myself. Yes, you can. That's a cop-out. Knock it off. Amen? We need older men to speak to those young men's lives. By the way, they can control themselves when dad shows up. Amen? It's amazing how a guy will be on the sofa with a young girl all over her saying he can't control himself till the headlights pull in the driveway. And dad comes walking through the front door, you know, cleaning his shotgun. Amen. <laughs> but the point is that there's that mentality that I can't control. Well, you're, right, it's self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If a, man does, if, a godly, if a man doesn't treat you with respect before you're married, I promise you he won't after you're married. So it seems like a short list, but after such a long list for young women, for a young man, self-control is a big list all by itself. It's all they can handle. All young men must learn to live carefully, to take life seriously. Again, it's easier said than done. Now, he does give some more details. Let's finish this off. He says, in all things, showing yourself to a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. So these young men in all things, Titus, a young man himself, was, not to be a, was to be a living pattern for all other young men to follow. They needed a pattern, an example, not in word but in deed. Truth can be taught or caught. And Titus was not only to tell them what they must do, but to show them how to do it. Showing integrity. The, do, the word there is doctrine or teaching. To, to be sound in their integrity. Mixing nothing with the truth. Adding nothing to the truth. Taking nothing from the truth showing his complete faith in the word of God. The word reverence there is that full appreciation of the seriousness of his calling as a young pastor, as a teacher. So his example was he's going to teach the whole counsel of God. He's not going to waver from it. And that should be an example for the young men that they should live by it and not waver from it. Amen? Guys, if we, if we waver from the word of God, we're going to tell people it's not that important. Notice he says incorruptibility. That word is sincerity. It means without wax. Again, we don't have time to really go in depth there, but remember I told, we've talked about this, and in those early days, what they would do is when they, were, they wanted to get over on somebody, they'd make a statue. And maybe if it had cracks in it, what they'd do is they'd fill it with wax to make it look good. And then someone would buy it and take it home, and then it would get hot, and the wax would melt, and the nose would fall off, and all the cracks would be revealed. And so when they would buy something, they'd say, is it sincere? Is it without wax? And he's saying that we need to have that sincere relationship with the Lord and live a life of sincerity. Sound speech that cannot be contemned. Words don't slip out, they pour out from your heart. The Bible says how the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. So if it's coming out of your mouth, it doesn't slip out, it pours out. 
I'm surprised how many self-proclaimed Christians just cuss and swear like sailors. And they say, don't be so legalistic. I'm not being legalistic. I'm just letting you know. That's a reflection of where your heart is. Well, I had that behavior before and it's just hard to give up. You're a new creation in Christ. You're dead to the person you used to be. You need to take that language and let go of it. Amen? We need to, our, our speech should be sound. No filthy, filthiness or foolish talking. The one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. It says there, you know, so that your accusers will be embarrassed having nothing to hold against you, having nothing evil to report concerning you. A person who is sound in his doctrine and holy in his life, there's no evil that can be rightly uh, alleged against him. A speech is so sound and so pure and so serious that those who would oppose you would be put to shame. A pastor's speech should be that he stands without rebuke. He's not to be a hypocrite in either word or actions. Same man in private as he is in the pulpit. And same is true for us, that we should be the same people at home that we are at church. Amen? I ran out of time, but real quickly, verses 9 and 10, he talks about bond servants, that we are to be the best workers in the building. A bond servant is a slave by choice. The debt's been paid and they choose to remain. And it's a great picture of who we are in Christ. We're bond servants. We're bound by love, not by law. And so this is the closest thing we have to an employee. And it says of them, and I'll read this real quickly and we'll close just so we have it. To be obedient to their own masters, to obey their bosses, to do well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not stealing, not pilfering, not showing... Uh, but showing all good fidelity, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You work where you work, first and foremost, to be an example of Jesus Christ. Secondly, to provide for your family. So when you go to work, you recognize that is your mission field. And people are looking at you. You may be the only Jesus some people ever see. And we should work in such a way that your boss wants a hundred more people just like you. You show up on time. You give them a full day's work for a full day's pay. You are honoring unto your boss. You do your job as unto the Lord. And you're such a blessing. This would happen in San Jose. They would come to me every time we had opened and say, you got any more of those Christians? Because we like them. They work hard. That's a great testimony. Amen. So in closing, behavior becoming a belief in the life of an older man, sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, sound in love, patient. In the life of an older woman, reverent, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. In the life of a younger woman, to love her husband, to love her children, to be discreet, to be chaste. In the life of a young man, to be sober-minded. And in the actions of a Christian employee, to be obedient to their bosses, well-pleasing in all things, not to be rebellious, not stealing from your boss, showing all good fidelity. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this clear instruction, so practical, Titus chapter two. And Lord, I pray that we would not leave here condemned, but encouraged. Encourage, Lord, to walk in the center of your will, to live lives you've called us to live. And I pray for those of us who are older, that we would be an example to the younger. And we would take time to speak in their lives that they will allow it. I pray for those who are younger. If, you don't, if they don't have a godly example, they would seek one out. That there be discipleship taking place in this fellowship where we can minister one to another. Lord, we love you. We know this list is impossible without the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't do any of it without you. It's not us trying harder, but us surrendering more. So fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be godly 
women, godly men, godly wives, godly husbands, godly teachers. Help us to be faithful to the calling you placed upon our life, to honor you and always say and do. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said,